If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and we'll continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, bear with the sound. We're working with uh, some technical difficulties this evening. I don't know how bad it is right now. It sounds really bad up here, but... <laughs> okay, we'll start with some prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son and the gospel. Uh, we love you, and we're so grateful for what you have done for us through him. We thank you for the simplicity of preaching, that you use a broken men like me to deliver your word, and through that, your spirit applies this word to our hearts. Father, we ask that this evening you would sanctify us through your word, and that we would walk away from here being ready and diligent to put your word into practice. We love you, Father, and we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's begin with a little bit of a review this evening. Uh, if you're in your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 31 and 32. And the title of this evening's sermon is From Bitterness to Forgiveness. From Bitterness to Forgiveness. But before we get to those verses, we'll review a little bit. As you remember, I'm sure the theme to this book is In Him, Our Position in Christ. And we've learned that in the first half of Ephesians, that's the first three chapters, Paul teaches us about our position in Christ. And then in the second half of the book, he changes to our practice. Chapters 1 through 3 is about what God has done for Christians, specifically those in Ephesus. But if you've personally turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection, then these truths apply to you as well. In chapter 1, the Christian has been, we learn that the Christian has been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. In chapter 2, we learn that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive. And not only did he make us alive, he united us with Jews, and Jew and Gentiles became one body, and we call that the church, the body of Christ. And in chapter 3, remember we learned that this body of Christ is, is called a church, and it was a mystery, and it wasn't revealed to those before us, but through the apostles and prophets, God revealed it to us. And that the church is the most important entity to God in, during this time in history. And if you're in Christ, then you're part of what God is doing through the church. And then, in chapter 4, we come to our practice in, in Christ. That is the process of sanctification. And if you remember, we're talking about practice. You remember, Wes, so sad that he's gone, started this section with the illustration of the kind of above average, but also kind of average basketball player of Allen Iverson. And he talked about how he was once interviewed, and, he, and all, the, all the people that were interviewing wanted him to talk about was practice, and all he wanted to do was talk about the game because... Alan Iverson had been apparently skipping practices or something. I don't know the whole context, right? And he repeated the word practice, practice over and over again. Well, I want to continue the theme of using professional basketball players to open up our sermons, arguably with one of the best basketball players there ever was. And let's just clear the air. LeBron James is not the best basketball player that there ever was. Michael Jordan is the best basketball player there ever was. But coming in at a close second, 
is a man some of you, I'm sure, have heard of, Kobe Bryant. If you didn't know, he was a Los Angeles Laker, and I'm sure you saw his name in the news recently, or not recently, but a couple years ago, and he tragically died in a helicopter crash. But the reason I bring him up is because in a recent documentary, I was taken back by what one of the people said uh, when he was interviewed about Kobe Bryant. This person that was being interviewed was a reporter himself, and while Kobe Bryant was living, this man had gone to interview him. And, you know, Kobe said, here's my schedule, my workout schedule. You can come and interview me anytime. I have free time. If you want to come watch a workout or practice, that's fine too. So the interviewer looks, okay, 4 a.m. That's his first practice or workout. All right, well, let's see what, what Kobe's doing at 4 a.m. So he goes and to the gym, and Kobe's there working out. And he sees Kobe doing the most basic of basketball drills. He's doing drills that elementary kids and middle schoolers and high schoolers do. And the interviewer's like, okay, whatever. And he gets it done. He just does this for the first hour of his day. And the interviewer finally sits down with Kobe and he says, you know, you're arguably the best basketball player in the league right now. What are you doing doing these drills? And he said, why do you think I'm the best basketball player in the NBA right now? And it occurred to me, the Christian life really isn't all that different, right? Kobe knew the importance of practice. He knew how to be an asset and value to his team. And the Christian life is really is really is not that much different. It's doing the basics day in and day out. And that's what Paul calls us to do here in the second half of Ephesians. If you're in Christ, you are to walk in this manner. You are to practice this way of life because this life, lifestyle, Paul says, marks the true Christian. And when we live in this way and we walk in love, Paul says that we foster unity in the body of Christ. Now, does this mean that we do this perfectly and we no longer sin? Of course not. You guys know that. And so Paul gives us some practical exhortations on how to practice this new lifestyle, on how to get the basics right day in and day out. And you know, Paul has been teaching us the principle of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. We saw this in chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Read with me. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, or which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness in truth. In effect, Paul says that in order to achieve Biblical change, this is what you need to do. You need to, one, it needs to be done under the power of the Holy Spirit, and two, it requires the termination of sins and the beginning of practicing righteousness. Therefore, our outline will be simple this morning. It'll be simply be putting on and putting off. And we'll look at the particular commands that Paul tells us to put on and put, or put off and put on. Let's read our verses for this evening, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Our first outline point this morning or this evening, excuse me, is put off bitterness. Put off bitterness. Verse thirty-one begins with uh, what we call a passive imperative or a passive command. Specifically, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And I think it's important to spend a little bit of time here and talk about the implications of this passive command because it, 
It helps open up the process of biblical sanctification. Now, a passive command is what's done to us compared to an active command, which we do under our own power. Think of it this way. It would be the difference between your mother telling you to go get your hair cut and to brush your hair. When she tells you to brush your hair, you're the one that's actively doing it. You're the one that's actively brushing your hair. But when she tells you to go get your hair cut, unless I, 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 maybe there's some of you in here that cut your own hair. Most of us don't, right? You actually have to go get it cut, and someone does it to you, right? It's a passive command. Somebody's doing it to you. But you still have to cooperate with it, right? You can't just like, okay, well, it's a passive command, so it's just going to happen to me. That's not true, right? You still have to get in the car. You still have to drive to the, to the barber or salon or whatever and get your hair cut, right? And this is true of many New Testament commands. We, by ourselves, do not have the power to carry out the command that is given to us in this verse or in these verses. But we still have the responsibility to cooperate in order to obey the command and achieve its, and achieve its outcome. One, one scholar said, speaking of the passive imperative, he said, quote, Embedded into the grammar of the New Testament is a fundamental principle in God's economy. God's operation and our cooperation. And of course, when he says this, he's speaking of the realm of sanctification, the second half of the book of Ephesians. But God just doesn't leave us to practice righteousness and holiness, holiness on our own. No, he empowers us by his Holy Spirit and gives us direction through his word. And it's our responsibility to cooperate with the means he's given us to accomplish the goal of becoming more like Christ. God says, here's the operation, folks. Here's the plan. You need to cooperate with it. You need to walk it out. In other words, if you're a Christian, God has given you his spirit to enable you and to empower you and his word to let you know what, pra what practicing righteousness looks like. Now you need to cooperate with it. Think of it, again, back to our basketball analogy. Think of it like a basketball coach. God isn't the type of basketball coach that comes to the gym and just throws a bunch of, bunch of balls on the floor and says, go ahead, have practice. That wouldn't really be much of a practice or much of a, of a coach anyways, right? No, he's got plans. He's got plays. He's got drills he wants you to do. And you need to, in order to do them successfully, you need to cooperate, right? I mean, you're not going to get any better if you're just sitting on the bench. It's your responsibility to put the effort in. And, but worse off yet, when you don't do this in the Christian life, we, we learned last time when we looked in Ephesians, you grieve the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian and you fail to put your way, put yourself in the way of righteousness, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. And in these two verses, God's plan for us is to put off worldly emotions and actions and put on godly ones. So let's look at the specifics of these verses. First, Paul says all, right? First, notice that he, he, he wants us to put off every type of sin that he's about to cover, right? It's not all-encompassing, but he wants us to be wise about it and understand that it's all of these sins. Now, if you're saying to yourself, but Paul literally just told us that we're a few verses ago that we're, we're to be angry and, and not sin. Well, we'll get there in a second. But first, let's talk about the first sin that he tells us to put off, bitterness. And recognize that bitterness, wrath, and anger, these first three sins that Paul tells us to put off, they're all inner sins that deal with our emotions. They're all sins of attitude. We can define bitterness this way. It's the inner sin of animosity or resentment. And it's primarily directed at a person. This word bitterness in the Greek language was also used to describe a, a, a sharp point, 
often the sharp point of an arrow, which is illustrative of how bitterness uh, makes us feel inside. It's a sharp feeling that often arises quickly, and it's often directed at a particular person. You see a particular person that you have bitterness towards, and that feeling rises up. Perhaps it could be small things, petty things, right? They, they have a car that you wish you had, or they, had, they have clothes that you wish you had, and you, you, you don't know why, but you start to be bitter towards these people. And you envy what they have, and then this envy turns into bitterness if you let it foster. Or perhaps it's a friend and longtime pastor recently that has crossed you in some way. And now when you see this friend, you, feel strong, you have strong, sharp feelings of animosity or even hatred towards that person. And for this sin to be, or excuse me, for this feeling to be sin, for this attitude to be sin, it doesn't have to, to linger for long. Perhaps over Christmas break, you, you asked your parents to go do something or, or go hang out with friends, and they told you, no, you can't do that. And in your infinite wisdom, you thought that this reason was unjustified, so you started to foster bitterness, an attitude of bitterness towards them. And it may come and go away quickly. But do you confess it as sin? Do you seek to get rid of it quickly? Or do you let it linger and justify it? Think of when you taste something bitter, right? What do you do? You don't just let it sit there. You, you find something to wipe your tongue off. You get some water to rinse it out. That should be the same response to when you feel bitterness rise up inside you. You need, you need to get rid of it quickly, right? You need to confess of it and repent of it. Another illustration of where bitterness also or, or usually lies is within divorce, right? Divorces are often uh, very ugly and they hurt a lot of people's feelings throughout generations, but people feel justified in holding on to their bitterness because of that sin. But there's no justified bitterness, right? There's no Bible verse that says, be bitter and do not sin. You don't get to be bitter about these things. Yes, you can be angry about the sin and not sin, but you cannot foster bitterness. The next sin of attitude that Paul tells us to put off is wrath and anger, wrath and anger. And we'll discuss these two together because while they're <clears throat> two different words, they're also, um, often used interchangeably. Um, in Ephesians 2.3, when Paul calls the unregenerate men children of wrath, it's actually the word for anger here in our verse. So you can see that they're used uh, interchangeably. So what's the difference? Well, the main difference between uh, wrath, wrath has to do with more of the heat of the moment, a passion of the moment. Um, it's usually more temporary than anger is. Uh, illustration of this would be your, your parents tell you to do something and you don't want to do it immediately or you're uh, you know, kicking against authority. Perhaps you kick something, right? You literally kick something or you punch a wall or you scream into your pillow, whatever it may be. That's wrath. A biblical illustration of wrath would be, you remember when David comes into the, the presence of Saul. Uh, this is really an illustration of both, but David comes into the presence of Saul and he's holding a spear. And what does he do? He immediately throws the spear at David because he's angry at him. His wrath comes out immediately. Now let's turn to anger. The Greek word for anger has more to do with a, a deep feeling that slowly arises, almost like a, a smoldering or, a, or an abiding. It's like a pot of water right, that just sits there and simmers and then eventually starts to boil over. Or you can think of it like a volcano, right? What, what happens in a volcano, all that pressure builds and builds and builds over time and then eventually it explodes. So you can see how anger and wrath are closely associated. 
Now, the vast majority of references to anger and wrath are in the Bible are God's anger. Psalm 7, 11 tells us that God is angry every day. But as we know, God's anger is always justified. It is always pure and holy, and it never leads to sin. But our anger almost always leads to sin. One scholar, our own Justin Turner, says that nearly 99% of our anger is sinful anger. But he wants you to know he's not a mathematician when he makes that assessment. And to help us see this, let's define anger uh, with a little more detail. Yes, it's a slow smoldering that eventually explodes. But one author offers this definition. Robert Jones, the author of Uprooting Anger, defines anger as follows. Anger is a whole person, active response of negative moral judgment against the perceived evil. I'll read that again. Anger is a whole person, active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Let's break that down a little bit. He's saying, first, he's saying that anger is complex, right? It involves the whole person, all our beliefs, our feelings, our actions, our attitudes, our desires. And it involves judgment of some kind where we're judging something that we perceive to be evil. And as soon as we have this working definition, we can see that when we bring in this judgment, we can see how our anger is not always justified and usually is sinful, and God's isn't, because God's judgment is perfect. And so when he judges evil, he's always judging it rightly. But because we're sinners, we don't perceive and judge evil accurately, whereas God judges and perceives evil accurately. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, that the Lord is the righteous judge. Because God is perfectly just, he cannot respond to evil and immorality in any other way but righteous anger. You see, God's anger reacts against actual sin that is actual, actually breaking his law. Where most of the time when we get angry, we get angry because we've been inconvenienced or because someone has violated our personal preferences. Usually we're not angry because somebody has broken God's law. And even if we are, even if our anger does involve the actual breaking of God's law, we're usually more angry about how it affects me than the fact that it actually is the breaking of God's law. And I'd venture to say that most of us, I'm not a mathematician either, but I'd venture to say that most of us, most of the time, we're angry when we shouldn't be and we're not angry when we should be. When Justin taught about anger, he used the illustration of uh, evolution or, or uh, the, some of the schools now have gay pride clubs, right? And in the culture that we live in, be honest with yourself, most of the time, we just kind of brush those things off. Yeah, that's just the culture that we live in. I mean, whatever, right? And those things don't really make us angry when they should. Those things should make us angry. Now, Justin said you don't get to make a, a whip like Jesus and go running into your science teacher's class or you know, into a club that promotes gay pride, right? You still need to love those people. Now, for sinners, our righteous anger often manifests itself in what Paul calls here clamor and slander, two more sins. And while bitterness, wrath, and anger are sins of attitude, clamor and slander are outer sins that have to do with our speech. And notice the connection. If these inner sins of bitterness, wrath, and anger are left unchecked, what do they lead to? They lead to clamor and slander. Another uh, English translation renders clamor as shouting, and another renders it as harsh words. Clamor is a bit archaic, 
um, when, you're, when you or in, in your siblings or your friends are horse playing and your, and your you know, mom or your friend's mom tells you to, to quiet down, she doesn't say, hey, stop clamoring around. She says, quiet down, be quiet, stop yelling, stop shouting. So we'll use shouting um, or yelling from here on out. It's what takes place when anger overflows into wrath and then it comes pouring out our lips. You can think of it like that volcano that erupts. And the same is true for a man who cannot contain his anger. Proverbs 12:16 says, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Why is his anger known at once? Because much of the pressure causes him to explode, right? He can't take the pressure. And it comes out pouring immediately. <clears throat> you know the situation. It happens to all of us. Our anger is slow, right? And then it all of a sudden comes spewing out at a friend or at our parents. And we say all kinds of hurtful or abusive things. And usually it happens at a higher volume than our normal speech because we really want them to know how angry we are. When in reality, all we're doing is showing the world how much of a fool we are. Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalt, exalts folly. <clears throat> now, slander. Let's define slander. Slander has to do with the intent to defame. It's the same word that's often translated blasphemy um, when it's in reference to God, when somebody is trying to uh, attempt to defame God. In this context, it's to speak to, to someone or of someone in such a way that you have the intent to bring them down. So much so that you have the intent to bring them down and elevate yourself. Another way to think of slander is just abusive speech. And listen, it doesn't have to be like egregious name-calling and cursing at one another, right? It just simply can be normal words that we use to bring people down. As Christians, we need to put all of this type of speech away. <clears throat> and these two, when they manifest, are the most def devastating when it takes place between two Christians, right? Because they're unconfessed anger between each other, or, or maybe there's more parties involved, right? It, it ends up exploding into wrath and then comes pouring out their lips. And instead of adorning the doctrine of God and making the gospel and Christianity attractive to other people, they do the exact opposite. Now, of course, the Lord can use that if they are quick to confess and repent that sin. But either way, it causes us to be unattractive to the world. And that's why Paul goes on to say, put these things away from you, along with all malice. I'm sure it's been used like an old garment that's worn out, right? We take it off and we put on a new garment. You take it off and you get rid of it and you put on a new garment that's pleasing to your father. I think you guys are probably old enough to have t-shirts that you look back on with like, hey man, look at that old t-shirt. You find it in the attic or in the corner of your closet or whatever. You're like, look at this cool old t-shirt. I used to wear this thing all the time. And you get it out, you're like, I'm going to wear this again. You, and you put it on and it, it's all like tight and it, it's like crusty and you're like, oh, never mind, this doesn't, I, I used to think this was cool, right? But I mean, that's how your old sins are. You think they're cool and you go back to them and they're not cool. And they make you look like a fool. And for you ladies that wear t-shirts that are three times too big for me, 
I, I, I don't know how that illustration works. I guess, I mean, you'll look back at pictures and be like, that, that doesn't even fit my dad. Why am I wearing that? I'm just kidding. You look great. <laughs> well, Paul gives us one more sin to put off, and it's the term malice. Now, malice is somewhat of a catch-all term for Paul. One dictionary defines it as following, or as follows, the quality or state of wickedness, a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition. The antonym of, or the opposite of this would be moral excellence or virtue. One author says that Paul is basically, uh, this is an all-inclusive word for him, for badness and wickedness. Basically, Paul's making sure that everything that he just said, we understand and the Ephesians understand that these are sinful attitudes and actions that we need to put off. He's clarifying, right? Because we talked about how there are times when anger can be righteous. He's talking about putting sinful anger off and shouting. I mean, one can shout for, the, for joy. One can clamor for joy, right? That's not inherently wrong, but Paul is talking about sinful shouting. He's telling us to put away shouting that has a malicious intent of hurting other people. Now, before we go on to, to what we need to put on, I want to make this a little bit more personal because some of you are probably sitting here going, well, yeah, I mean, I, but I don't really struggle with anger. I mean, I don't shout at my Christian friends or my parents. And that may be true. There are sins that tend to be vices uh, for, uh, for us and, and maybe not for somebody else. But just because it doesn't manifest itself in that way and screaming and shouting and name-calling doesn't mean that anger doesn't reside in each one of our hearts. And so kind of as a sub-outline to our first point of putting off, I want to just talk through a couple different aspects of anger, which really is going to encompass all of these sins that Paul has told us to put off. I'll read through these three aspects, and then I'll repeat them when I get to them. But first, anger is something that we all deal with. Second, anger is a bigger problem than most of us think. And third, anger finds its origin in the heart. First, anger is something that we all deal with. Each and every one of us here has been angry at some point, and we've all been angry, and even to the point where we've hated somebody. Some of you here tonight are sitting and holding on to anger, and anger isn't something that just goes away once we're a Christian, right? Once we're born again, it doesn't just go away. No sin just goes away. We need to fight it, and we need to put it off. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Here we have Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees and the scribes, right? They taught that if you hadn't killed anyone, you had kept the sixth commandment perfectly. But Jesus, in order to correct their teaching and show the exceeding sinfulness of man, declares that all men have broken the sixth commandment because all have anger and all have hatred in their hearts. Jesus teaches us what the Pharisees and scribes should have already known, that God cares more about the righteousness of the heart than what you do outwardly. Not that the outward things don't matter, but from the heart flows the outward actions. Or perhaps you're not convinced. You're sitting here saying, yeah, I mean, okay, Cody, but I, I, I don't hate anyone. I don't get angry. Well, let me offer what one author calls smoke screens to our anger. That is, we say these things or we do these things in order to conceal our anger. And you don't have to raise your hand, but think, have I ever said any of the following? I'm not angry. I'm just upset, or I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Or instead of lashing out and shouting at somebody, you just clam up and you give them the silent treatment. 
Or perhaps for some of you, when you get angry, you just start to cry, right? And if you're crying, then obviously you're not sinning, right? Not so. The truth is that each one of us deals with anger in our hearts. Second, anger is a bigger problem than we think. In Matthew 5, where, we, where I had you turn, Jesus equates it to what? He equates it to murder. Jesus says that if you hate someone or are angry with them in your heart, then in his interpretation of the law, you are guilty just like the murderer. Look at verses 21 and 22 in Matthew 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In other words, Jesus, in his eyes, is saying that if you're angry with your brother, you are just as guilty as the murderer. If you slander your brother, some translations, or if you look at your footnote, it says you good for nothing is uh, really raka. It's just a transliteration of a slang term that first century Jews used to call somebody a, a fool or a blockhead or something. I don't know, right? He says that if you do these things, you are also guilty of murder before the highest court in the land. And more than that, you deserve hell because of your anger and hatred. The world and our sinful hearts like to try to trick us into thinking that these sins are no big deal or aren't even sins at all, right? But you need to remind yourself that these are sins. And in Christ's eyes, they're liable to the same punishment as the murderer. Third, our anger finds its origin in the heart. It finds its origin in the heart. I don't believe this is new to any of you. If you've grown up in a Bible-believing church, you know that sins, sin originates in our hearts. And I'm sure that some of you probably even know the scripture to go to to teach that. So flip over a few pages to Matthew 15. And as you're turning there, I, I just want to say, you know, if we take a moment to remind ourselves of the origin of sin and anger, we'll, it'll, it will help us to combat it. John Owen said that sin is like an enemy behind friendly lines, one that disguises as your comrade, and then the next thing you know when your guard is down, kills you. So before I read in Matthew 15, let's get a little bit of a running start. You remember Jesus was confronting the Pharisees for not following the tradition, or excuse me, the Pharisees were confronting Jesus for not following the command, their command of washing hands before dinner. And then Jesus replies by confronting them and teaching that ultimately it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out from his heart. And later the disciples are still a little bit confused about this and Peter asks him to explain. And look at verse, verse, verse 16. Jesus replied, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. But out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now, Jesus isn't providing a proof text for you to ignore your mother's commands to wash up before dinner. He's teaching us what the Old Testament taught, what the Pharisees, the teachers in Israel, should have known. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of all people are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. 
Jeremiah 17, 9, I'm sure you know it. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's what? Desperately what? Sick. Who can understand it? You see, your heart is the problem. Your parents' rules that frustrate you are not the problem. The person on the highway that cuts you off is not the problem. The phone is not the problem. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, you name it. It's not the problem. Jesus says that your heart is the problem. From your heart comes your anger at the man who cut you off, your frustration at your parents' rules. And from your heart comes your lustful thoughts and your envious thoughts. This is why the Old Testament exhorts us to guard our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Proverbs 4.23, turn there with me real quick. Proverbs 4.23. Here Solomon teaches that a man's primary problem is in his heart. And, he, and we know it's a two-way street, right? I mean, garbage in, you get garbage out. And, and this is exactly what Solomon teaches here. But the heart is a two-way street. You look at verses 20 through 22, he's teaching about guard what is coming in. And then verse 23, he says to watch over your heart with all diligence. And then in verse 24, he's teaching to guard, 24 to 27, he's teaching to guard what comes out of your heart. We need to be diligent about both, about what comes in and what goes out. But primarily, sin comes from our heart. Solomon, much like Paul in Ephesians, is calling us to be diligent and to a concentrated effort to guard our hearts. In order to be successful, you must see this as a two-way street. You must recognize it's not just what comes in, it's what comes out, and you must work to guard your heart by putting off sin and putting, off, or putting on righteousness. And how, and how silly would it be, think back to Owen's illustration, if, if an enemy got behind friendly not lines and you identified the enemy and you killed the enemy and then that's all you did. I mean, you would, you would try to figure out how, how did he get in here? Where did he come from? And you'd put up defenses in order to keep him from coming again. And God gives us the defense in his word. What's the defense? It's to put on righteousness. You see, if you just kill the sin, it's going to come back again if you don't put on righteousness. Right? Guys, the, the, the phone, the computer, while it's good to, to keep it out of your room at night or, or whatever you, you may do to, to help you with holiness, that's not the problem. Right? If you don't address the heart and put on some form of righteousness, the righteousness that's prescribed here, your heart's just going to find the sin some other way. Satan's been tempting man long before there was internet, before there were phones. He's going to find a way to tempt you and your heart's going to seek it out. So this brings us to our second point, put on kindness. Put on kindness. Kindness and forgiveness. Back in Ephesians, I'll read verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Literally, verse 32 says, be becoming kind to one another. This implies the change. Become what you have not been, but it also implies a process. Keep being kind. Keep working at it. In other words, now that God has changed your heart, start to be and continue to be kind to one another. This, this uh, word carries the idea of being fit for the situation, right? One author describes it, it's like a glove that, that fits your hand perfectly. 
So being kind looks differently in different situations. Sometimes it's, it's offering a piece of advice to somebody, namely when you're asked. Other times it's simply listening to a friend. Other times it's encouraging. And, then, and, and be re- reminded that being kind is a fruit of the Spirit. You, under your own power, cannot do it. So if you're trying to be kind and you're going, what's going on? And you're always angry, you're always mad, you're always breaking out in wrath and clamor and shouting and malice, you need to reevaluate your heart. Make sure you are a Christian. You must turn from your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus and his spirit will take up residence inside you and will enable you to carry out the commands in his word. He will help you to be kind. You will be able to cooperate with God's operation. Of course, we know that you may be able to learn this behavior right? And, and, and it just be a, a behavior modification. And you may have everyone else fooled, but in fact, you know that you don't have God fooled. Instead, the, chain, the change needs to come from within the heart. Then you won't be, as the analogy goes, stapling fruit to the outside of the tree, and it will be growing from the branches and growing from the healthy root. Next, Paul commands us to be tenderhearted and to put on tenderheartedness. This is a a rare word. It's a compound word that's derived from the Greek word that usually refers to the inward parts of a person, his heart, lungs, kidneys, so on and so forth. And later it was used to metaphorically to refer to the seat of a person's emotions. It's used in the New Testament and is most commonly translated compassion, um, compassion of Jesus. Matthew 9.36 says, Seeing the people, he, Jesus, felt compassion for them because... They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Another author says that this is an ancient way of referring to what rises up from the innermost of one's core. Again, it's what flows from the heart. You're not encouraging a friend simply because you know it's the right thing to do. You're not kind to somebody simply because you want them to be kind in return. No, you do these things because you actually care for that person and you have compassion for them. Finally, Paul says to forgive each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We're to put on forgiveness and graciousness. The word forgive here is actually the word for grace, which of course includes forgiveness, but forgiveness alone denotes that somebody has actually wronged you, has actually sinned against you. And as we learned, oftentimes when we're angry and bitter towards other, it's the, the injustice that we perceive right? And oftentimes that's just, a, that's just an inconvenience to us, and we're not even angry about the fact that they've broken God's law. But Paul says to be gracious to them. Don't rush to conclusions that they have, in fact, sinned against you. Instead, be gracious. And if you do come to the conclusion that they have broken God's law and sinned against you, forgive them, just as you have been forgiven. Now, what does this final clause mean? It seems fairly simple. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Um, but in my opinion, it's been a little bit overcomplicated. And you're probably sitting there going, how has it been overcomplicated? It seems simple to me. Well, there are those who, who teach that forgiveness can actually occur. It's not complete until the person repents and confesses to you. Right? The sinning party comes to you and confesses and repents. Then you can forgive them. 
But I believe what they're doing is confusing forgiveness and reconciliation. And we have to understand that there's a, a difference between the two, and there's also a difference between God's forgiving and our forgiving. You see, forgiveness is to dismiss or release someone of something. Usually it's the wiping away of a debt, right? It's used that way in the New Testament in Jesus' parables. You owe somebody $100 or something like that, and they tell you, don't worry about it. Your debt has been forgiven. You don't owe me anymore. It's been wiped away. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is the mending of a relationship. And some say, like I said, those two are inextricable, right? You can't separate the two. And for God, that is true. When someone is actually forgiven, it means that Jesus' blood and his perfect righteousness has been applied to the sinner's account, and there has been reconciliation taking place. But you see, God offers forgiveness to everyone, to everyone who has broken his law. His forgiveness is offered to all, but just because it's offered to all doesn't mean that every man comes and confesses and repents before their Lord and Savior. Not all lawbreakers' relationship is reconciled with their Creator. But this doesn't make God's offer of forgiveness any less real. Now for us Christians, by the virtue of the fact that we are not God, we forgive a little bit differently. We are to forgive in our hearts regardless of whether or not reconciliation takes place. We don't get to withhold forgiveness and wait for somebody to come to us and say, oh, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, will you please forgive me, and then you forgive them. Now, if that person is a Christian, you need to do everything you can to reconcile that relationship. But if we were waiting around for for non-Christians unbelievers to come and repent and confess their sins to us, those who have wronged us will be waiting around until Christ comes back. And let me show you why, as humans, I believe that we don't get to withhold forgiveness in this way until there's actually reconciliation. It's because the New Testament teaches that one of the marks of a Christian is his ability to forgive. In other words, if you have truly been forgiven by God, you are able to forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 through 15 says, Jesus Or Jesus says the following, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now what Jesus isn't saying here is that you earn God's forgiveness by being forgiving to other people. We know this, right? We don't earn God's forgiveness. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what he's teaching here is that this is a characteristic of the kingdom citizen that they are forgiving and gracious people. Christian, as a citizen of God's kingdom, you must work to have a gracious and forgiving attitude. Think about it this way. If you have beef with somebody, ask yourself this question. Has this person sinned against me in a way greater than I have sinned against my God? The answer is no. Right? And because it's no, you are to forgive that person just as Christ has forgiven you. When you are gracious in this way and you look past offenses and you confess your sinful attitudes of bitterness, anger, and maliciousness, then you're carrying out Christ's command, Paul's command here. And when you confess any manifestations of that sin, shouting and name-calling, then you're promoting unity in the body of Christ. You're seeking to imitate Christ, following in in his footsteps, 
walking as he walked and living a lifestyle worthy of your calling. And you remember, again, we're talking about practice. Don't be like Iverson and complain about practice. Instead, in this way only, be like Brian, be like Kobe. He was up every morning going through the same basic drills. Read and meditate on God's word each morning. Ask the Spirit for illumination. Apply what the Spirit has taught you from his word day in and day out. Pray to the Father, glorifying the Son and confessing your sins day in and day out. And then you're prepared to go out to, into the game, to go out into the world and to put on Christ, to put on righteousness and display him and adorn the doctrine of God to the world. And then you can come to church and you can serve others and you can encourage others. But you have to do the simple things first. You have to cooperate with God's game plan. And he will equip you for his calling and make you useful in his church. And you will enjoy sweet fellowship with your creator, savior, and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the simplicity of your word. We do confess that although the plan is simple in our sinfulness, we also like to overcomplicate it. Although the plan is simple, we in our sinfulness neglect it. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit we would be invigorated to again visit the simple truths of your word and be reminded that these sins come back once we put them off once, it doesn't mean that they, they don't come back. We need to continue to put them on and continue, or put them off and continue to put on righteousness. Father, we thank you for your son and what he has done on our behalf. And therefore, we're able, because his spirit resides in us, to accomplish the commands that you call us to. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your, our time together this evening. Amen.